Welcome to the Leadership Mindset Podcast with me, Tony Brooks, where we look to revolutionize your leadership mindset by changing how you think and see your world, enabling you to do the right things and grow significantly as a leader. Welcome back to the Leadership Mindset Podcast Series. I'm very pleased today to have with me Simon Raybould, who um, Simon and I have got to know each other over the past two or three years during the pandemic, actually. Uh, just to give you a bit of background on Simon then. He spent almost 25 years uh, as a senior research associate. Uh, but after that, well, actually, alongside that, he, he started to do work in the area of presentation skills, but has had his own business, uh, Aware Plus, I think it's called Simon, uh, over 50, well, around about 15 years. Interestingly, I was, I was looking at this. You started your business in August 2007, which is exactly the same time that I started starting my business. And Simon has uh, authored three books, no, four books, in fact. He just had another one come out recently. Uh, he's a TEDx speaker, uh, an actor, playwright. And he tells me as well that he's a reasonably competent fire eater. We may get into that one. <laughs> we may get into that one later. But thanks. And I know, actually, interestingly enough, one of the final points about Simon that I've just discovered today, he's got the biggest speaking gig of his life on Saturday when his daughter gets married in Liverpool. So, oh, don't. Please don't remind me. <laughs> he's going to do a fantastic job, but I can totally understand why that would be probably the most daunting speaking job after out of all the incredible array yeah. of speaking gigs he's done over the years. So welcome, Simon. Thank you hugely for sparing some time, particularly this week, uh, to talk to me on the Leadership Mindset Podcast episode. First, Firstly, you're welcome, of course, you are, Tony. And secondly, anything to take my mind off Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So I'll be bringing it up at regular points during the podcast interviews just to uh, to make sure we're okay with that. Do you want coherent answers or you just want me to go... You'll be coherent. You'll be coherent. Yeah, so let's actually, let's start off with, I, I, I said what we'd focus on, and obviously your expertise is, is, is in all the different aspects of presenting, but what would be really interesting for the listeners today, particularly because this is a Leadership Mindset podcast series, is to talk about the psychology of speaking, because that's a, a massive hurdle for a lot of people to get over, really. And um, the, the term glossophobia, uh, which many people may not have heard of is is the phobia of public speaking, and I was going to ask you first of all. Well, what what do you? I, I know you and I have slightly different interpretations of, of the word glossophobia, but um, yeah, what do you make of that? And why do you think that this fear of public speaking uh, can be? you know, such a big hurdle for people to overcome. Why oh, I, I love the way you open this with something. You you just baited me on purpose. You know we're <laughs> going to go straight into a froth at the mouth rant at this point, don't you? Because yeah. glossophobia is a phobia, like arachnophobia. Yeah. People do not have a phobia of public speaking, most of them. They have a fear of public speaking, yeah, a yeah. perfectly rational, normal fear like of doing it. something socially dangerous. Yeah, I like it. It's, you know, they have a fear of jumping off tall buildings without a safety mat. It's exactly the same thing. It's the same fear. It's just focused on something different. It's not a phobia. It's a fear. Now, phobias get treated in different ways. You're a psychologist. You know how to treat phobias. Fears are different. Fears are rational. And the people, the reason, there are lots of possible reasons why people have this fear of public speaking. Um, mainly it's a fear of getting judged. It's a fear of being ostracized. It's a fear of sticking your neck out. 
a lot of it, and I'm going to be really unpleasant here and really aggressive, a lot of it is just damned laziness because people would rather say, oh, no, I'm frightened of doing public speaking <laughs> than they would actually get off their asses and do the work for public speaking. Yeah, okay. And you know how people go, oh, I'm really bad at maths. I can't do maths. And what they actually mean is, I could be good at maths if I put the sweat in, but it's easier for me to say I can't do maths than it yeah. is to actually do the sums. Um, so there's a lot of people claiming they're frightened of it when actually what they mean is I'm a bit nervous. I'm normally nervous, just like everybody else has a normal level of nerves for that kind of social pariah environment risk, but they just don't want to stick their neck out and, and, and get on with it. The rational part of it is that it sticks your neck out from the herd. I mean, if you look at it from an evolutionary biology perspective, the only way to stay safe is to stay part of the tribe. Yeah, love it. Where's the tribe? Yeah, where's the tribe? The tribe is sitting in the audience. Yeah. No, love <laughs> it, love it. You are, you know, you are sticking your, yourself out and going, right, I, dis- I define myself as different from the tribe. Yeah. And either the tribe is going to follow me or the tribe is going to ex- ostracize me. Yeah, love it. That's love a high-risk environment. A yeah. really high risk environment because if you're ostracized from the tribe, you're dead meat. Yeah, and it's great that you picked up on that. And yeah, genuinely, for the listeners, I, you, you and I haven't talked about this before, but that, that's one of the key factors I, you know, I see in this as well um, is that we are still part of our psychology is quite primitive, really, and we're, we're quite tribal in nature. And as you say, we're in front of uh, and what, in effect, we'd like to think is our pack. And you use the word ostracize if we feel that people disengage from us and whatever and, and ostracize us because they don't connect with us, then uh, that can become a, a fairly irrational, exaggerated fear um, that uh, we, may, we may experience, really. Um, the other thing that, that I believe is happening to a degree, where, which, again, is a little irrational, is there's, uh, again, our psychology, our, our emotional reactions to things. We don't really understand the difference. Part of our psychology doesn't understand the difference between being in a physically threatening situation and being in front of a group of people. And it is sometimes, I'm sure with you as well, Simon, sometimes when I'm helping people, it's just getting them to get a sense of perspective. You know, they're not about to go into a life or death situation. Um, but yeah, but their hindbrain doesn't know that. The hindbrain yeah. thinks it's a life or death situation, just like it feels it's a scary situation when you're on top of a cliff about to jump off with or without yeah. a rope. Yeah. Your subconscious and your metaconscious and all your unconscious thing is just responds in exactly the same way as it was a yeah. physical threat. Yeah. So the right. tools that we use are very much orientated, or sometimes, some of them at least, are orientated around handling what people perceive as and respond to as a, a physical threat. Yeah, yeah. Um, threats to your emotional integrity, threats to your membership of the tribe are just as dangerous as threats to your physical bit, as, as far as your body is concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm sure you've read all the research on, on why people, for example, stick with or stuck with Trump, even though they knew he was bonkers because they couldn't afford to leave the they couldn't afford to leave the tribe because yeah. social ostracism by leaving the tribe was more, they would rather be wrong than ostracized. Yeah. Even though they knew they were wrong. 
Yeah, no, it's good that. Yeah, I never thought we'd get onto Donald Trump on a session about the psychology of public speaking. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think he's probably the greatest example as a, of a public speaker, really. But you know, depends on what you're trying to do with your public speaking. Let me go off on a rant for one second. Yeah, if you believe that speaking is to get people to do what you want them to do, the man's a genius. Yeah, he's okay. incoherent. He's bonkers. He's narcissistic. Yada 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 yada. But in or, but if the definition is motivate people to a behaviour that you're targeted for, yeah, then he he kind of nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Depressing, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I mean, it's that. I guess it's that power of influence that um, he and, and other people have had. I, I like the way you've, you know you've drawn that distinction between something like your TEDx talk which is incredibly uh, professional, what have you, um, versus someone like Trump here, as you say, not not particularly professional, not coherent, but in terms of influencing massive, yeah. masses of people, then, then effective, really. Okay, uh, great. Well, I think you and I are on the, the same page with what we see as the underlying reasons why people have a fear. Not a, I mean, I, and again, that phobia piece, we were, we were playing around with that. But I'm, as you know, I'm not a great fan of the expression imposter syndrome because I think everyone going around telling themselves they've got a syndrome when actually what they've got is a normal, rational fear of um, not having the right skills or abilities to fulfil a particular role. Is, uh... so, so a conversation for you and I over a pint of beer or something at some point is the fetishization of a whole bunch of normal stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, happens can, a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. absolutely. You give something a label in order to make people feel better. That's fine. But once you put them in the box, then sometimes it's hard for them to get out of that box. Yeah. Okay, then. So let's let's move on to what what do you, you what have you built up over time yourself in terms of strategies that you use um, to get yourself in the best headspace mindset and what things do you bring to the people that you work with? I, I know I saw you speak at the Professional Speakers Association in the East Midlands and, um, and it was, you know, you, you've shared some really fascinating stuff there. But yeah, what are you, what are you sort of your main strategy sense, Simon, for the one that I use? Yeah, the ones personally. that you use and that you recommend to other people as well. Oh, okay. The one that I use most is, is, is called, is, is the one that you'll love. It's called Be More Batman. Yeah. Um, and the logic of it goes like this. It is to use an alter egoed stage performance version of yourself. We've got, oh, I've got one called Stage Simon. Stage Simon is different from real Simon. Um, and I use him in a lot of ways. The first is it's always Stage Simon that goes on stage and does the business. Yeah. That's because if I get off, if Stage Simon gets off stage and people go, well, that was rubbish. They ain't criticizing me. <laughs> they are criticizing stage Simon. They are they are criticizing a performance that I gave. So I distance myself from kind of the real thing, if you swear to me. Stage Simon is, is similar to me. You can't create a, an inauthentic persona. That's really hard. Only professional actors can do that. But he is distinct from me. He walks slightly differently. He talks slightly differently. He stands slightly differently. So there's that moment before I go on stage where my eyes go blank <laughs> um, and I, I, Simon turns off and stage Simon comes back in and, and takes over. I'm making it sound really melodramatic, but it's, it, it's not. A, a, the other advantage of, of uh, an alter ego is that quite often I don't know what to do. 
But there's this whole weird thing where I'm sure you'll appreciate this yourself, Tony. It's much easier to solve other people's problems than your own. Yeah, because if you could, yeah, if you could solve your own problems, you'd have solved it by now, and it wouldn't be a dang problem. So <laughs> you can use that by creating an alter ego. I've no idea what the heck to do on stage, but if it is a different version of me, it is somebody else on stage. If it is Stage Simon performing on stage, I can solve his problems. I can tell Stage Simon what to do. I can tell Stage Simon where to go how to gesture, when to speed up, when to slow down, when to change the slides, because I'm not under pressure. Stage Simon is now yeah. solving somebody else's problem. So that's that's the one I use pretty much all the time. Yeah, and that's interesting because I guess in a way that sort of ties into um, psychologist William James sort of act as if principle a little bit as well, doesn't it? The, you step into uh, a different shoes, yep. you know. And, and I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a big music fan and I watch particularly certain I, I sing in a band so i was interested in watching frontmen so and some people who perform again as you said i guess this is absolutely true for actors and whatever which is more your background but they are um, incredibly introverted not comp- but they step onto the stage and Ooh. it is almost like they're stepping into stage whoever it is you know and i, I yeah, so- absolutely yeah. yeah i mean the most famous version of that is is beyonce who could not perform okay Hence the creation of Sasha Fierce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beyonce has got a background in gospel and church music and is very demure and can't go on stage and, and dance like she does. Well, she can now, but she couldn't. Because basically Beyonce's dancing is, is, is soft porn and under certain circumstances, and she couldn't bring herself to do that. She created Sasha Fierce, an alter ego, to who could do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Sasha Fierce was the, the performance. But you're right, I toured for oh, seven, eight years as the technical director for um, for dance companies. And almost every single professional and aspiring dancer I worked with performed for the dance, not for the audience. Okay. So they went into that space where I am a dancer, not I am going to dance for my audience. They went into that headspace of I am a dancer. Nothing okay. exists apart from me, the music, and the movement. Yeah. Uh, the audiences are unnecessary evil to pay for me, the music and the movement. I've got to have them there. But that wasn't their MO. That wasn't their motivation. Okay. And a lot of speakers I, I know do the same thing because what's more important to the speaker is the message, not the people to whom they are speaking. Yeah, I know this is a big thing for you, isn't it? The sort of focus on the message. I guess the a couple of thing, thoughts there, though. I, I guess... Uh, it still needs to come across for me. It needs to come across as authentic, and you need to believe that person and what have you. And we can talk about maybe sp- a couple of speeches later. Um, yeah. So, so I, I just yeah, I, I think there's that for me. There's that slight uh, concern that it's still making it authentic. And the other thing is, um, and I've been to hear your views on this. I often feel to help me get out of myself. I focus more on the audience and I talk to people to focus on the audience more rather than getting internalized and, you know, uh, am I doing a great job? Uh, you know, am I coming across or whatever? Just focus on the audience and what you bring into the audience. Which I guess, I guess t- touches on your message. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. What are you bringing to the audience? Yeah, yeah. What are you bringing? Yeah. So it is a, so that your presentation becomes a gift to your audience rather than a performance for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And that does a whole number of things. The first is it, it shoots down most of the ego presenters. Um, it also empowers the introverts because they realize that the audience is not, you know, that is not the be all and end all. Yeah. Um, but the third thing is it, it means that people focus much more upon how to best explain what it is they are trying to deliver. Yeah. And they stop performing and ironically, they become more authentic. Yeah, no, okay. because they are no longer interested so much in being liked as in being understood and being useful, being valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. So, what are the? Um, I, I know what I was. One I was definitely going to ask you about. Um, in fact, let's get on to that now. So, another strategy that you um, spoke about, which is something that I use, but in a, in a different way to the way you spoke about it, is going back to right to the principles of classical conditioning, uh, and. I use um, something called the circle of excellence, which I find, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but I came across it in training years ago. So I visualize stepping into a circle, in and out of a circle, my circle of excellence, and remembering times when I was in various states and reliving those experiences. And I find that really helpful because uh, it can get rid of the clutter and it uses past experiences as a resource in the present um, present situation. Um, but give, give the listeners your view on, on, on what you do from a sort of classical conditioning point of view. Oh, that works. What you've described there works. All, I've, all I'm doing with the, the classical conditioning stuff that you're referring to, the anchoring stuff there, is taking what you're talking about there and formalising it as a system, as a process. Yep. And the reason I do that is because the people I help most are those people who are technically really 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 good at what they do but need that help now to start talking about what they do yeah so giving people a process giving them a system by which they can capitalize on and operationalize on on conditioning and um, controlled memories and circle of excellence and all that kind of thing works it's all i all i've done with that kind of anchoring stuff Mm -hmm. is give it a structure for people it's the same stuff as you're doing it is just i I explain it and deliver it as a step-by-step sequential process. Are you comfortable sharing that now? Or? Oh, yeah. People are interested. Okay, yeah, so um, it works best if there is something in your day, the functional same part of your day, that just makes you go, ah. And it could be I know what getting home and, Yeah, <laughs> it could be getting home and seeing your kids. It could yeah. be when you close your laptop down at the end of work, it could be when your dog bounds up and sees you, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, I've stopped asking people what it is now because I did this thing on stage once when I asked them and said, and three people in a row went, it's when I get home and see my kids. It's when I get home and see my kids. It's when I get home and see my kids. And the fourth person went, it's when I get my bleep kids to bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the point. That's the point. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It is always the same functional point of, of day. Yeah, and you just go, oh, and that's a that's part of your psychological thing, but it's also mainly a hormonal thing. Your body's producing a whole bunch of feel good hormones at that point. Yeah, well, wouldn't it be great? Let's call that your R moment. Wouldn't it be great if you could condition your body to produce those feel good hormones on demand? Yeah, and the traditional way of doing that, the Pavlovian way of doing that, uh, is the way Pavlov trained his dogs is that every time he fed the dogs, he rang a bell. Yeah. Feed the dogs and ring a bell, feed the dogs and ring a bell, feed the dogs and ring a bell. Yeah, yeah. Until the dogs started to salivate every time he rang a bell. Yeah. Because they'd been conditioned to behave as though they were going to be fed. That's a good so, summary of classical conditioning for people who've not heard of it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so if you 
if you think of feeding the dogs and, in my case, seeing my house, that's my R moment, my version of ringing the bell is called my anchor. So all that happened was that instead of feed the dog and ring the bell, I saw my house and did my anchor. Yep. So it goes from feed the dog and ring the bell to see my house and do my anchor. See yep. my house and do my anchor. See my house and do my anchor until eventually I've conditioned myself to the point where I can do my anchor even when I can't see my house. Yep. And I have the same hormonal response because my body is is conditioned to do it. I have the same hormonal response as if I have seen my house. Yeah, yeah. Now, seeing my house is my anchor. Other people will have different anchors and, 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 yeah, and yeah. so on. Um, and people will have different R moments and all that kind of jazz. But the point is that every time your R moment happens, you do your anchor until eventually you can simulate your R moment just by doing your anchor. And share what your anchor is. <laughs> my anchor is to rub my thumb across the inside of my wedding ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a risk in that because it means I have always got to be wearing my wedding ring. But <laughs> you've heard this joke before. The day I go on stage and I'm not wearing my wedding ring, I've got bigger things to be frightened of than audiences. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I have to try and explain to my wife where my wedding ring is for a start and why I'm not wearing <laughs> it. So, um, because, you know, that's a death wish reason. Isn't it? Um, but the point is that when you start... It's Sorry, a good way to stay married as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's either married or dead. Um, but that the anchoring and a tool that we've just talked about there, it's really useful for making your presentations because you can use it whenever the presentation starts and you're terrified, or you could use it whenever the presentation is going wrong and it gets you back in the zone to be able to sort it out. Or you could use it at known points in your presentation that you're anxious about, such as the thing that always freaks people out is when there are questions at the end. Yeah, because they 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 say to me it's not possible to rehearse questions and answers. It is, of course, but they don't, you know, they don't think it is. Yeah. Um, so you could use that anchoring technique at that point where you think you're going to need a little bit of a. Uh, I'm going to call it a crutch with air quotes around it. Yeah. No. A system, a prop, a tool, a, yeah, yeah. a device, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Process or whatever. Yeah. No. Really like that. If you were to share one final thing, so we've got the Be More Batman, we've got the, um, the the anchoring. If you were to share a third strategy for people listening today to get themselves in best headspace, what would you what would you choose? Oh gosh, this is good. I don't know why I've chosen peripheral vision because it's such a hard one to do on a podcast. Okay, so I am looking at you down a Zoom link. Yeah. Okay. Now that means that the only thing I can see which frightens me is you. Everything else in my room is perfectly normal and safe. Microphone, wall chart, cold cup of tea, all of that kind of jazz. Let's pretend that you're my audience and I'm the presenter. From an evolutionary perspective, what we do is when we are threatened, our brain zones out everything except the threat. The logic is that we take in more and more information about the threat in order to be able to deal best with that threat. So if you're faced with a saber-toothed tiger, the fact that the trees are pretty is an irrelevance. Let's just focus on the <laughs> flipping saber-toothed tiger. Right? If I'm standing in a room looking at an audience, the colour of the wallpaper is irrelevant. The audience are the threats. So my brain filters everything out. Yep. The prefer- peripheral vision technique is really simple. It is to force yourself consciously to become aware of everything else in the room so that you are now aware of everything that is not a threat. 
So, for example, I'm looking at you. You're the threat. Ah, you're really scary, Tony. Um, but I now become consciously aware of everything in my room. So in my room, there is a picture that my daughter painted of me when she was four. There's my work wall chart. There's my spare glasses. There's my camera. There's my phone. There's my Kindle in its case. There's a cold mug of tea. <laughs> Just spotted it over there. There's an empty cold mug of tea over there. <laughs> uh, there's my, you get the idea. So I become consciously aware of those and none of those are frightening. A wall yeah. chart's not frightening. A light's not frightening. My phone's not frightening. My Kindle's not frightening. An empty mug of tea not frightening. So I change you from the frightening thing to being one of the things I can see. Yeah, you're still frightening, but you're only one thing I can see, a modern field, or a field of non-frightening things. I put you in your perspective, basically. Yeah. It, put Tony back in his box. Stops you narrowing your focus. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's interesting. I was um, before... Uh, earlier today before being with you, I was um, on, the, on a call with somebody I've known for a few years. We've not seen each other for a while. And he's, his background is sports science as well. But he was talking about the danger in sport of becoming hyper-focused. In a way, in a, in a way I know it's slightly different. Uh, uh, do you know what? Honestly, that, that peripheral vision technique was taught to me by an Olympic athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. I know that's interesting. And you do realise what you did when you were describing things then was bring back your daughter who did a picture of you when she was four years old this is the daughter you can't let down on saturday <laughs> you're an evil man <laughs> you said i was a nice which, man. which brings me actually it brings me to a, um, a pet peeve of mine which is which is this about presentations people are not frightened of making presentations they think they are but they're not what they are frightened of is the consequence of making those presentations yeah yeah which is quite a, it's a subtle but quite significant difference. Because yeah. if you can divorce the presentation from the consequences, then the presentation becomes a lot easier. Yeah. No, uh, so silly analogy, really stupid analogy. If I'm rock climbing and I've, and I've got a tricky move to make two meters off the ground, I fall to the ground to two meters, no biggie. But if I have the same move to make 20 meters off the ground, now if I fall to the ground, I'm going to kill myself. Yep. So it's not the fall. Not the move, sorry. It's not the manoeuvre on the rock wall. It is the risk, the consequences of falling. So I'm not, you know, the, the gig I'm making on Saturday night for my daughter's wedding, there's only going to be 90 people there. Peanuts. Yeah. It is the consequence of the gig letting my daughter down that is making it so frightening for me. Yeah. So yeah. what I've got to do is just concentrate on just do the gig, Simon. Yeah. I just do the dance, as you were saying earlier. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I remember working with a client years ago and um, she was doing a, her own event down in London and she rang me on the day of the event and she was getting herself uh, in a bit of a state. And I just, um, I just calmly said, is anyone going to die today? If, even if this doesn't go well, will your business be destroyed? You know, whatever. Um, which I guess in a way was starting to talk about consequences a little bit. And she said, I'm getting things out of perspective, aren't I? And mm -hmm. I said, yes, you are really. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The very first thing that goes when you're stressed and anxious is your sense of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So if you need me on the end of a phone on Saturday, Simon, just before. <laughs> to help you get well, how much you charge? <laughs> um, nothing for you after today. This is not really. Uh, it's my birthday on Saturday, though, so I may have had a few rums. We'll see. No use to be drunk. Yeah, I'll see how coherent I managed to do that. Okay, no, brilliant. Those those are really fascinating. And I heard you speak about all three of those when I saw you do your talk at the, the PSA. Um, why do you think that 
presenting is is such an important skill to develop for people and uh, yeah well no that i guess let's stay with that question okay i'm going to use a really crass analogy okay imagine a really big library and in that library is a book which contains the answer to your question but if that book is misfiled and it is somewhere in a library of 40,000 books, but you've got no way of finding it, that book is pretty damn useless. Is that a reasonable yeah. supposition? If you can't find it, okay. The same is true of presentations and your ideas and your data. There is no point in me having the answer to your question if I cannot explain the answer to that question in a way that you can hear, that you can understand, that you can apply. Yeah. There is no point, I mean, you mentioned my TEDx, there is no point in me having... Uh, a useful, potentially useful way of of helping people with their grief if I can't explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's in my head is is is, is useless. Yeah. It is not any good for people. It is not any good for society unless it is in the air and in somebody else's head. So we talk jokingly about presentations being a form of telepathy. It's about getting stuff that is in my head into your head. Yeah. Um, and that means that you can use it because unless it's once unless it's into your head, you can't do anything with it. Yeah. And at that point, we're back to this idea of, of the content of your presentation being a gift for the audience. It is something that you give to people so that they can they can make decisions with it. They can use it or they can not use it or they can. Yeah, you know, it's entirely up to them what they do with it at that point. Yeah. No, it's great. It's, it's back to that concept of, be, of being of value, isn't it, I guess? And uh, and I know that, um, I mean, we're, we're talking about presenting public speaking, but it's a form of communication at the end of the day. And I know that you, you know, you talk about communication skills in, in a broader sense anyway. And yeah, it's, you kind of often you can think of a presentation as a bit like a report, but with emotion and interest. Yeah. Um, and that's, this is a big fetish of mine, if you'll pardon the the, the, the phrasing. This is a personal opinion, so disregard this if you want, because this is this is my experience, not the research. Yeah. But the way I tend to think of presentations is a bit like reports with emotion. But nobody ever judged a report by the quality of the font. Nobody ever judged a report by how nice the paper was that it was printed on. Yeah. People judge reports by the did it make sense? Could I understand it? Can I apply the recommendations? Yeah. If you think of a presentation as analogous to a report, it's just a report you stand and deliver with slides or not, rather than something you print and give people, then the pressure is way, way off because you have to worry far, far less about, do I look good? Am I standing right? Do my slides look sexy? Am I using the right font? Have I made the right hand gesture? Is my head tilted at exactly the right angle to convey sincerity? Have I left a pause of 1.45632 seconds? Or, damn it, did I leave a pause of 1.96432 seconds? Oh, my God, I gestured to the left when I meant to gesture to the right. Now nobody will understand the timeline. Oh, my God, it's a disaster. You get rid of all of that. Yeah. So long as the audience take away what they need to take away, everything else is just is just dressing. Yeah, you know, it's making me think of one of the you know the famous talks um, of the past sort of few years. Simon Sinek doing start with a why when he just had a flip mm-hmm. chart and drew three circles. Yeah, and and that's been one of the most sort of um, 
probably noteworthy talks of I don't know the last ten years or so. Really. Oh, um, definitely, and launched his career and a whole bunch of a whole yeah, bunch of things absolutely. because the message was. I mean, yes, he got lucky for a whole other reason, bunch of reasons as well. But basically, what he was doing there was giving people something in the best way to give it to them. Yeah, that was it. The fact that he didn't use fancy slides, yada yada yada, he literally just had a flip chart tells you something about the importance of the message and making sure that people can understand it. I mean, you can, we can take that thing to pieces if you like. So, for example, there are technical things he did there which are breathtakingly clever. Breathtakingly clever. They're so clever that people don't spot him doing it, if you what I mean. So, for example, he spent a good chunk of his, of his TEDx time at the beginning asking questions. Why he literally says at one point, why do you get out of bed in the morning and why should anybody care? Why is it that people think about Martin Luther, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? He wasn't the best speaker around. Why is it that the Wright brothers got controlled powered man flight when there were other people who didn't? Why is it that Apple, yada, yada, yada? He spends a long time asking those questions so that by the time he gives the answer, people want that answer. Yeah, yeah. The why is the thing. He actually, he walks his talk. He gives people the why they should care. Because if you come on and gone, I have discovered how to inspire action. You do this, circle, circle, circle. Nobody would have given a monkeys. Nobody would have cared. He asked those questions he asked at the beginning are critical. And the, not just the fact that he asked those questions, but the nature of the question. So he's talking in America about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther. There is a holiday named after him. You can't be American and not know who he is. He's guaranteed a quick win with the audience. At that point, you can't not emotionally connect with him at that point. He chose his examples really cleverly, really clever. Yeah, it's true, you know, and I, and I often say to people, I don't know how well you feel about this, Simon, because obviously I'm, in my work, I, I help leaders with with various aspects and presenting is part of it. Um, you know, it's not my it's not my area of expertise like it is for you, but I, I help uh, leaders present better in public speaking. But the, but the one thing I find is that with some good techniques, um, and and you know, you're showing some additional techniques today. It's great to hear. Um, I think you can elevate uh, people's presentation skills and a presentation and whatever quite speedily and compare with the impact you can have in other areas of training and coaching i think it's one of those areas where if you get the right techniques you can i mean just simple stuff yeah god simon you know this totally but i've watched people and they just face the audience for god's sake what i was gonna say first slide 20 bullet points and they look at the slide and read it and you just think oh my god if i could just help you and tell you just you know to do it differently but it is isn't it i think with some good techniques it can make such a difference yeah and it's not as if those techniques are not well known yeah 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 Uh, the, the the question behind what you're saying there i think is why is the standard of presenting so flipping low given that we know how to make good presentations or certainly we know how to make good enough presentations why do people consistently make rubbish presentations yeah um I have a number of theories, but they are just personal theories. One of them is that they see so many rubbish presentations, they think that that is what you're supposed to do. They're just the culturally yeah, inculcated, the you know. Yeah. Uh, every stands and reads the slides. That, therefore, is what you're supposed to do. The fact it doesn't work is irrelevant. They know it doesn't work because they're sitting in the audience listening to those slides, getting really bored. But that's what they do anyway, because that's what's expected of them. Yeah. The other reason for doing it is, frankly, because that's easy. Yeah. 
just bunging something into bullet points takes me 10 minutes. Creating a proper presentation that's going to have impact takes people a little bit longer than that. It's true that when I started presenting in corporate world, I, I just used to open up PowerPoint and start putting some bullet point slides together. And that yep. was my, my lazy approach to starting presenting. Yeah. Sort of 25 it's, it's, yeah. it's changed now, but for forever, the default template in, in PowerPoint was just rubbish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's what it was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. And just while I'm still on my hobby horse, I think the third reason that people um, do it badly knowing they are doing it badly links back to something we said way, way back. When you asked me about why is it so scary? It's because you're sticking your neck out. Yeah. Yeah. And if everybody else is doing it using technique a, and you use technique B, even if technique B is better, (laughs) you have upped the risk of ostracism. Yeah. You could be ejected from the tribe. (laughs) I mean, I have, I have, I'd be very careful not to tell you, which of my clients at this point, but one of my clients was partnered with Microsoft. We spent two days designing a PowerPoint deck, a slide deck that was then run past the, past the CEO who said, we cannot use this. When I said, why not? He said, because it will show up all the other slide decks that we have got. (sighs) Now. Okay. Back to the drawing board. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting. Okay, because well, it is, it is I mean, so common to do it the kind of routine, boring, wrong, yeah, you know, thoughtless way. Fit in, fit in. You know, yeah, that's all it. about fitting in. Yeah. All about fitting in. Brilliant, brilliant. No, I've loved it. Okay, so I've got a couple of things before we uh, finish today. The first question is, um, what's one of your well, well, not necessarily your favourite, but what are you, what's an example of one of your favourite? talks or speeches that you've seen i mean one of my favorites was um michelle obama 2016 the democratic convention which i i loved i I love her as a speaker anyway but how about you simon what's your what's an example of one of your favorite talks can i have can i have three yeah of course you can all right so the one that anybody can look at because the other two are private the one that everybody can look at is go back to videos of cop 26 and watch Sir David Attenborough. It's just a masterclass in how to dance with the slides. Okay. It was, the man did not put a foot wrong. It, I mean, you wouldn't expect him to. I mean, he is so experienced, it is unbelievable. Um, sometimes you might think that the video and slides overwhelmed him, if you're watching the video of it, but remembering he's not talking to the camera, he's talking to the, to the people in the room. But it's just an absolute masterclass of, how to say stuff and have your slides support it, but not showing the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. So his slides, he was giving data and his slides were giving an emotional backup. It's just an absolute masterclass. Okay. I've not Um, seen that myself. I'll enjoy watching. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, The other one is a comedian called Mark Thomas, who a couple of years ago did a a theatre piece, one-man show, speech, rant, whatever you want to call it, called the Red Shed Tour. Okay. And he worked his audience and worked them and worked them and worked the message so very, very well that come the end, he he just started singing Solidarity Forever, just quietly. Da, 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 da. Had he done it three more times, he would have had the audience on his feet cheering with our hands over our heads and, and mind the barricade. But he just went da, da 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 in order to get the message in our heads, okay, and then walked off stage 
and deliberately left a standing ovation on the table. Wow. Because the message was more important to him than the ovation. Blimey. Yeah, okay. Can you imagine having the guts to deliberately sabotage a standing ovation? (laughs) We wouldn't do it, would we? (laughs) I have faked standing ovations. I don't know. (laughs) Um, And and the third one is from a, a speaker friend of mine called Ricky Arundel. Um, oh yeah, I, I, Ricky's in the professional speaking. Professional, yeah, yeah. Ricky, Ricky used to have a, a strap line, which is um, "Why do men treat women so badly?" Ricky should know she's been both, which is just possibly yeah. the best strap line I've ever yeah, come across. I know, I know of Ricky. Yeah, yeah. But she fin- she had a, a speech called uh, "The Road Less Travelled," which I watched, and um, she finished it with just a photograph of traditional junction exactly as you expect there was a, a path in the woods there was a very obvious path and then was there was the path less traveled yeah um and because of her trans background she was walking the path less traveled that was what she was getting at yeah. um and, and she just finished with a question which was i'm walking the path less traveled would anybody come with me oh, it's just you could hear a pin drop yeah because she just left it on that on that cliffhanger but I have to say, although those are three highlights they've given you, do you know what? The average presentation is not like that. The average presentation is given in a boardroom, is given to 20 people, is given to 12 people, is given at two hours' notice when somebody says, can you bring us up to date on the figures about so-and-so? Can you explain why the such-and-such project is behind? And those, to me, are the more important presentations, getting those right partially because there are so many of them and partially because they are the, they are the engine house of how society works. Yeah. Those to me are more important than the showcase presentations that we've been talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Michelle Obama, Mark Thomas, David, Andrew, Ricky Arundel. Great. They're absolute heroes on the stage. Done it myself, but the real heroes of, of presenting are those people who turn up to do a bloody good job of a, normal business presentation that makes a real difference yeah 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 yeah. because without those presentations businesses hospitals charities yet you name it they're all going to carry on doing the wrong thing yeah uh yeah no superb thank you for those i i think uh, well I'll, i'll certainly dig out the david attenborough one and um I've heard of Mark Thomas. I don't know him very well, but yeah, and I know I know of Ricky as, as well. So uh, yeah, thank you for sharing those signs. So before we finish, I just wanted to um, see where people can find out more about you or connect with you. I know, obviously, on LinkedIn we're connected, and you do regular videos, which are really great. You know, with, with short oh the talk tactics, yeah, really, <laughs> yeah, they're really useful. And I think it's that short bursts of information and ideas. And um, people will get get a further flavour of you as a character and also what you're about. So I would definitely recommend connecting with Simon on LinkedIn. But yeah. where else can where else can people find? Uh, well, egotistically, my LinkedIn ID is Simon hyphen Raybold hyphen presentations because there are a couple of other Simon Raybolds on on LinkedIn. Okay. One of them is a baker, which is quite fun. Um, Twitter, I am at presentations. Yeah. I got lucky. I can't pretend that that was skill. I just got <laughs> lucky. Um, but if you want to read the blog and all of that kind of jazz, the best place to go to is presentationgenius.info. Yeah. Presentationgenius.info. I have the most egocentric 
website title in the world, isn't it? PresentationGenius.info. Uh, wasn't my idea. It's because that was the name of the book that the publishers asked me to write. And the whole brand of Presentation Genius came off that last. Oh, no. Now, last but one. Yeah, because uh, you've got presentation um, genius, yeah. what's the new coming up, yeah, coming up for air. Coming up for coming air, up for is, air the is the new one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Presentation Genius is the one. Honestly, it's the, the high street bestseller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, it is as cool as you think it is to walk through an airport and see your book on the top shelf at WH Smith. It, 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 oh, it is man. as much fun as you think it's going to be. Yeah, no, no <laughs> amazing, amazing achievement. So, okay, well, brilliant. Well, thanks hugely for spending your time today. It's been fascinating. We, we could talk for hours about it, but I think there's so many good nuggets for people to take away from this, even if they, you know, act on two or three of the things that we've been talking about. I think that, and also actually, I think improving people's awareness of why we can get hijacked a little bit when presenting or whatever, you know, you and I are both on the same page. I love this, you know, all that talk at the start of this podcast episode as well. So when this podcast episode comes out, which we're aiming in July the 28th, you'll have done the most important talk of your life, Simon. <laughs> That's, the one. That's the one. I'm going to go rehearse it now. <laughs> hey well thank it's, you it's any consolation when i've shown people the script all my friends instead of being sympathetic or helpful all they've done is open a sweepstake on how far through it i'm going to get before i start to cry yeah there is that danger there is that danger <laughs> focus on the talk and the dance <laughs> not anything. just do the gig simon just, just do, do the gig. gig yeah yeah just do the gig hey no well, thanks hugely for sparing your time uh during what is obviously um a really really big big time for you this week and uh and everyone got details on where to connect with you so thanks simon thanks dave really enjoyed it really really enjoyed it if you want to explore your leadership mindset in more detail why not complete our free leadership diagnostic at thetonybrooks.com and subscribe to this podcast to join us for future podcasts